Today is Reformation Sunday in Reformed Churches. We remember that on October 31, 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther went to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed 95 questions, theses to that door that, uh, that started what we call the Protestant Reformation. His, his purpose was to protest abuses that he thought he saw in the church, and thus the name Protestant. So what was the Reformation, and what did Luther want to reform? Well, in a nutshell, he wanted to reform the church, and what the church looked to for authority. His main concerns were the worship of the church, the teaching of the church, and the leadership of the church. He wanted worship that followed the teaching of Scripture rather than the traditions of men. He wanted the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to once again be taught clearly and unapologetically in the church. And he wanted the clergy then to exhibit scriptural holiness of life that was tragically lacking in those days. So what was the Reformation? Well, in a word, it was a revival in the biblical sense of the word. It was not in the frontier camp meeting sense, but in the biblical sense, it was a revival. So what should we think of the Reformation today? Is it just an old thing that old people like me remember? Well, it depends on what you think of worship uncluttered by the devices of men. It depends on what you think of proclaiming the gospel of justification by faith alone that sets men and women free. It depends on what you think of the scriptures and their authority in the church and what the reformers call sola scriptura. I think it's worth remembering because I think these things are vitally important to the glory of God and the good of God's people in every age. Uh, the text I've selected for today, I think, um, touches on a theme that was central uh, to what Luther did and other reformers. And so I want to ask you um, to turn to Luke 4, uh, begin, well, actually Luke 3, but the sermon is mainly from Luke 4. And while you're turning, I want to give you a little introduction to the text and to the message. Uh, some of you know that from time to time I have done some teaching uh, in various classes on various topics in various places. Uh, when I was a graduate student at Notre Dame, I taught a class there. I taught at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and two RTS campuses and Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham. And as a teacher, I have a grade book. Um, uh, it's got, this is a used grade book, you might say. It's got names in it, you know, and you know how grades book, grade books work. You know, first test, second test, third test, paper, final grade uh, kind of thing. Uh, sometimes I use this to grade how people listen to my sermons, so watch out, okay? You're, you know, um, I'll set that aside for a while, but uh, there's a reason I mention that. Now, the, the main focus of what I've got today is called Jesus' temptation or his testing. Uh, we are all familiar with Jesus, uh, with, with this passage probably, but all of us are familiar with testing, right? When I think of testing, I think of my mother cooking something and saying, well, that's when we go to grandmother's house. And so she'd pull it out of the oven and I would smell it and it would just be 
just onerous for a young kid to say, well, there it is, it's hot, it smells good, and you can't have it. There's testing, you know. It was worse with cakes than cookies, right? Because with cookies, you might slit, snitch one, and she didn't know you got a cookie. But if you cut a cake, you know, it's not uh, much hiding there, okay? So we know temptation. But Jesus' temptation, though in some ways like ours, I think it is also unlike ours. And in fact, I think it is more unlike ours. And I'll make that clear in just a moment. I also want to say before we pray and read that I assume this is a real temptation. That as Hebrews 4 says, he was tempted in all things like as we are, yet without sin. Uh, people debate, how could the Son of God be tempted? I don't want to debate that today. I'm just going to say, I assume it's a real temptation. The Scriptures presented as a real temptation. I take that on faith and figure out the details later, okay? All right, let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage. Father, uh, make this word alive to us today. Uh, make it a hammer conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus. Make it uh, a healing balm in Gilead, to use the scripture phrase, to apply and comfort hearts. And use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of Jesus. And Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Let me remind you, we believe the Bible is the word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And I want to start in Luke 3 at verse 23. Which the first section uh, that I'm going to read, that part of chapter 3, is the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm sure that many of you have been perplexed. Why in the world is there a genealogy of Jesus right between his baptism and his temptation? If you've never thought that, I can understand it. But, but many of you might have focused on that. You thought, my goodness, why would you? A genealogy ought to be at the front of the book like Matthew does it, right? Well, yes, except Luke has particular purposes uh, for, for doing it right here, and I'm going to make good on those purposes, I hope, uh, in just a moment, okay? So, um, let's begin at verse 23, and I'm going to skip some of these verses. If I would have been nefarious, I would have asked Steve to read all of this, uh, but I'm feeling <laughs> gentle today, and so I won't do that, okay? Here we go. Jesus, this is going to trace the, 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 the lineage of Jesus from Joseph Back to Adam, okay? Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matt, and we'll skip down, okay, to 27, the son of Jonan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, let's skip down to 29, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mat, Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of, let's just skip down to the end of 31, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, skip down to... Um, 33, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru. Skip down to 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Whew, okay. 
And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers will fade away. But this is God's word. It will not fade away. It will abide forever and forever. Suppose, and some of you have probably been in this situation, suppose you need to pass a test at school. Suppose you're in high school or college, you need to pass a test in order to pass the course, and you need to pass the course with a certain grade maybe to be admitted to another school or another program. Suppose further you need to make 100 on the test to either pass the the course or to make a good enough grade Uh, to be admitted to another program. Uh, I've known people in that situation. I remember in college, a guy said, I've got to ace the final exam, or I won't graduate, or I've got to ace the final exam, or I can't get into graduate school, or something of the sort. And for most of us, that'd be pretty challenging. Most of us, it'd be pretty challenging. Some of us have been in that situation, right? Suppose further that the test you're going to take is a one-question test. You know, the prophet is going to, you're in a history course, and the prophet's going to say, trace the history of the world from creation to the present, giving emphasis to this. You've got three pages to do it. You know, it's some crazy thing like that. Or, or, you know, one question test, and all of your grade relies on the test. Is there pressure in that? There's real pressure in that. Suppose further you fail the test, and you fail it badly. You don't make a 50 or a 30 You make a zero. You just blank out. You can't think of anything, not even your name in the top right corner of the page. What do you do? Well, it's a nightmare, right? Where are you then? Where are you then? Well, friend, you're where Adam was in the garden. He was given a one-question moral test by God. Don't eat of that tree. You can have every other tree. God gave him a one-question moral test, and he failed. Not with a 50, not with a 30, he failed with a zero. And he was exempted, I mean, expelled, rather, from the garden. What was tested? Well, Adam's morality, yes. But I think it was more Adam's faith in God, and that God intends to bless his people. And Adam was tested, and he failed. Now, 
God's got a grade book, like I've got a grade book. Adam's name is in it. And it, Adam's, that was Adam's score. Can you read that? That's Adam's score on his test. Well, my name's in his grade book too. And your name is in his too, in his grade book too. You've got a line in God's grade book. So, if you have a one-question moral test and you fail it, where are you? I'm saying, you're, well, you're where Adam was, yes. But you're where the entire human race is in Adam. Because Adam's score was imputed to the rest of the human race. Adam's score was my score. I'm born with a zero in God's great book. Luther felt that acutely. He tried to bribe God with his performance, but kept feeling there was a zero. Isaiah 64, verse 6, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment in God's sight. It's very, very difficult for some people to admit that. Many people can never accept the gospel because they can never admit their score is a zero on God's moral test. Well, maybe I failed the test, but at least I had a 50 or 60. Maybe I can pull my grade up. Well, no, I didn't really fail. I may have a low D, but, you know, I've passed the course. Friend, if the Scripture's right... We're born with that score on God's moral test. And that's the score you're born with in his grade book. Not only is that where Adam was and where all those who were born descended from Adam were, but it's where Israel in the wilderness was. They were tested by God in the wilderness. They were tested with hunger. They were tested with thirst. God gave them bread and God gave them water and God gave them meat. But he gave that only after they had failed their test. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Hebrews 3 is very clear. They failed the test. Israel failed the test. Adam failed. All his descendants failed. Israel failed God's test. And so here in Luke 4, Jesus is tested. He's tempted. And he's tested as the second Adam. The first Adam failed. But look at the text. This is why the genealogy is here. The genealogy begins in 323 and ends in 338. Adam, and he's the son of Adam, the son of God. Now this second Adam teaching that you find in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5 is what is behind this. Um, Jesus is descended from Adam. He is the second Adam. And, and he's tested as the new Adam, the second Adam. He's, he's tested as the new Israel. Uh, in in uh, Hosea 11 and in Matthew 2, uh, you remember the text about Jesus in, 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 uh, Hebrew, in, in uh, Matthew 2, he'd gone down to Egypt. And it says... He came back to Egypt and he said, this is to fulfill the scripture. It says, out of Egypt I have called my son. And, and in, and in uh, Hosea 11, Israel is called the son of God. So we've got a new Adam, we've got a new Israel, and he is the son of God. And he's tested as the son of God. 
in, in, in verse 3 of, of Luke 4, uh, if you are the Son of God. And in verse 9, if you are the Son of God. I've never been tested that way. I was the son of Ed and Margaret Carter. <laughs> uh, I've never been tested as the Son of God. You've never been tested as the Son of God. That's the reason I think this test... Though a temptation, though we understand temptation of cookies and cakes and other things, this test is very unique because he's tested as the Son of God. A couple other things, and I want to look at the three temptations, okay? The Holy Spirit is in this. Verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. This is a spiritual battle between Jesus, the Son of God, and the devil. This is Jesus, the divine warrior, slaying the enemy. Jesus resists this temptation. And as one who resisted, he will be qualified to represent his people in his life and his death particularly. He will be the Lamb of God without blemish. Because he passed this test. Now I think the meaning of each temptation is best understood by a careful examination of the response that Jesus made. Sometimes it's pretty, a little unclear as to what does the devil exactly mean by that temptation. But if you look at Jesus' response, I think it helps clarify those things. And that's the the methodology I'm using uh, as I look through these things. But I want to give you the essence of what I think this temptation is, and I think it will help you to see it as we go through it, okay? The first thing in regard to the essence is this. The devil is trying to get Jesus to sin and be disqualified to be the Savior of the world. He is trying to get Jesus to sin and be disqualified to be the Savior of the world because it has to be a lamb without blemish. If he's going to be a lamb without blemish, blemish, that's given for the sins of the world. He he cannot sin on this occasion. And 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 deeper in the devil's temptation is this. What he's saying to Jesus is, look, be done with this cross thought. Take your glory now and serve now. Don't humble yourself to the point of death. Go for the glory right now, Jesus. And if Jesus does that, if he goes for glory Without Golgotha, you and you and you and I will not be saved. So that's the temptation. Bypass the cross. Get glory. Get majesty without the cross. Ooh, no, I've never been tempted like that. So let's look at the three temptations. I'll be pretty brief, but I'll, I'll, I want to, there's point to be made in each one of, one of them, okay? So, so the first one is, he's been in the wilderness 40 days, and he's hungry. Uh, and he says, look, if you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And the point, the temptation is about God's care, right? Does God care for you? And he tempts him with bread. And the point of this temptation is there's something more important than eating. So he's hungry. He's been in the wilderness 40 days. Israel had been in the wilderness how long? 40 years. I think that's not without significance, that this is a replication, in a sense, of the experience of Israel in the wilderness. And understandably, he's hungry. 
Interestingly, the first Adam had eaten his fill in, the, in Eden. But this second Adam is hungry. And as the Son of God, he can perform this miracle. He can cause a stone to become bread if he has a lapse of trust, if he has a lapse of faith. What is the essence of this temptation? Well, this seems to me it's very much like Genesis 3, right? Where Adam and Eve are in the garden. God said you can have all the trees, everything in the garden except this one thing. And so the devil says to Adam and Eve, well, has God said you can't have any tree in the garden? Does God love you? Does God care for you? Will God provide for you? Is, is God a good God? That's what Adam is saying. Adam is saying, don't trust God, provide for yourself. What Jesus is being asked to do is prove your sonship now, prior to the cross, by performing this miracle, and not by resurrection after the cross. Prove that you're God now, apart from the cross. Now, interestingly, Romans 1, verse 4, in an underappreciated verse, in my opinion, says this, And he, Jesus, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. You see, it's his resurrection that shows that he's the Son of God in power, that he is the real deal, that he is the Messiah that he is the conqueror. That's what shows it. And the devil is saying, none of this cross business. None of this cross business. Show you the Son of God by changing a stone into bread. Now, in Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you in these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus quoted. He said, man shall not live by bread alone in verse 4. The Word of God and obedience to it are more important than eating. My future depends on the will and the words of God, not on food. In Luke 4, when he, had, uh, when he was interacting with the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and he sent his disciples into town to get some food, and they came back, and he's talking to the woman, and he doesn't immediately eat, and they encourage him to eat. And he says, my food is to do the will of God who sent me and to accomplish his work. If I fail here, I cannot accomplish God's work. The issue is how am I to live? And the answer is in faith. Jesus lived in faith. We're to live in faith. He passed that temptation. The second temptation is the temptation to rule through false worship. And the the point here, I think, is that there's something more important than immediate power and glory. Something more important than immediate power and glory. Now, the temptation is that he says the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. And he said to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Don't get lost in the it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom it will. 
Don't get lost in, how did this happen? What does it say about the devil? Uh, it's an interesting question, but don't get distracted. It, it will lead you away from what I think is the main point, okay? Here's the point. Jesus at this point has nothing. He has nothing. I mean, if he had a bank account, you'd ask him, Jesus, what's in your bank account? He would have said nothing. What is the devil offering? Everything. Everything, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, all the authority. And that a power and glory that what? He deserved. He's the Son of God. But he refused to worship Satan. He refused to take his power and glory immediately. He refused to take glory without the the cross. He refused to take glory apart from God's providence providence and God's promise and God's provision. He he refused glory without Gethsemane and Golgotha. He refused glory without suffering and sacrifice and redemption. And the response in verse 8 is, I won't do it, in so many words. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. Jesus wouldn't do it. Would I have done it? Would we have done it? The third temptation is the temptation to test God's presence and protection. Uh, Jesus was taken up to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from there. And now the devil's quoting scripture. The devil has realized, okay, Jesus is has responded twice with scriptures. And so now the devil is misusing one from Psalm 91. I won't go into all the intricacies of how the devil's misquoting Psalm 91 when he talks about he will command his angels concerning him. And he quotes it properly. He just misuses it. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. So what the devil is saying is, Jesus, throw yourself off the temple... Um, and, and you will force your father to save you before you hit the ground and die that way. I guess he could have done it. Daryl Bach, a um, good commentator on Luke, says that the devil is saying God will protect those who are his, who are his, So go ahead and jump. If you're God's son, Jesus, you need not worry a bit. But Jesus didn't do that. He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. And if you read in Exodus 17 about the way they tested God, and testing God is something that I think is little understood in the church today. Um, But the primary point of the... Exodus 17, verses 2 to 7 passage, is they, they, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord here? Does the Lord care? Will the Lord protect? And that's testing God. For someone who's in covenant with God, it's testing God to even ask the question, does God care? Is He present? What do you think this sacrament means? What do you think it means if you sit here and say, does God care about me? He bled out His only boy for you. He gave you His Holy Spirit living within you. You say, my life's hard. I say, His life was harder. 
It's a fallen world. The life without pain that so many fault God for is the next life, not this life. Is the Lord with us? Yes. Is the Lord among us? Yes. Does the Lord care about us? Yes. And they doubted that in Exodus 17. And Jesus didn't doubt that in this third temptation. So, a few lessons and reminders, okay? And then I want to bring it to a conclusion with some, I hope, helpful comments. Even those who are full of the Holy Spirit and squarely in the will of God can be greatly tempted. That's what you get out of verse 1 in the whole story. Even those who are uh, squarely in the will of God, even those who are full of the Holy Spirit, can be greatly tempted by the devil. Don't be surprised. Don't be dismayed. Don't think, if God was with me, it would not be so hard. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us into wildernesses to be tested for His glory. And for our joy, what Peter calls the tested genuineness of our faith. Secondly, from the first temptation, we learned that life does not come primarily from food and drink and clothing and possessions, but from submission to and obedience to God and His Word. From the second temptation, we learned that significance. He said, hey, Jesus, take the world's glory Take the world's power. Take the world's authority. Be somebody, Jesus. Be significant, Jesus. Significance at last does not come from serving Satan and seeking significance by power and glory from the world. It comes by faith in Jesus and adoption as God's child. I was so glad that in God's sweet providence, the above the corporate confession, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. If you want significance, you'll find it in dwelling on your adoption as a child of the living God. Yeah, you will. That's a, great, that's a great thought, and I will maybe draw that out on another occasion. But that's where significance comes from. It comes from being a child of God. It comes from submission to the will of God and obedience to the will of God and worshiping God alone. It's true for Jesus. It's true for us. Humiliation comes before exaltation. Exaltation will come, but not before the cross. From the third temptation, we, should not, we learn we should not artificially put ourselves in positions that force God to act to deliver us. Well, if God's a protecting God, I can jump from the train and he'll stop the train. That's putting God to the test. That's saying, God, prove you're here. Prove your care. It's, it's a lack of faith in that the sacrament and the gospel of that proof. The third temptation we learned, we should not artificially put ourselves in those positions. Um, and also, I think we learned that the scriptures are... Usually, though they, the third temptation shows they can be twisted, but the scriptures are a good way to respond to temptation. Uh, and Jesus' quoting of scriptures sto- shows that. We should study it, memorize it, use it. When Paul writes, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, I think he's saying, take up the sword, memorize it, study it, meditate on it. 
Now, I want to close uh, with this thought, and it'll take just a second to work it out, but I, it, it's, it's really very important in understanding all that's going on here. In the 13th verse of Luke 4, it says, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So this series of temptation uh, has now ended. The devil departed. The implication, though, is that the devil will return. He, he departed from him until an opportune time. Um, the devil departed and, and he will come back and tempt and test Jesus again. Now, I think, though there's no, I think, scripture verse to prove this, that, that, uh, um, Temptation tends to come in seasons. You say, well, for me, it kind of, there's open season on temptation every day. Maybe so. But I think the kind of temptation, big temptation, uh, uh, the things like Jesus is talking about here, things that when we're tempted to deny God and chuck it all and everything, I, I think that doesn't happen every day for most Christians, okay? So I want to explore... Um, when that would be. But I want to emphasize, and, and I was very thankful that, that Ben was uh, saying this in his opening prayer. This is the crucial test. This is the crucial test. After this, he will be tested again, but he has demonstrated his faithfulness to his calling. Um, ben, I don't know if you intended to pray that, but you did. You talked about uh, things directly related to this in your prayer. It's a, this, this event, uh, Luke 4, the temptation of Jesus, is like the Allies landing on the beaches in Normandy on, in 44. The German generals said, if they get a beachhead, they will win. And they got a beachhead and they won. And Jesus has got the beachhead now. And he will win. It's, it's just a matter of time. Okay. Two times that the that devil the devil came back. One of them is Matthew's um, in Matthew's gospel in chapter sixteen. You know uh, Peter's confession followed by Peter's confusion. Um, who do men say that I am? Peter said, "You're the Christ. You're the Son of the Living God." And then in verses twenty one and twenty two, Jesus began to say, oh, "Well, I'm going to be uh, uh, betrayed. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be crucified." And Peter said, that'll never happen to you. What did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. What was Peter saying to Jesus? Don't go to the cross. It's exactly the same thing that's being said in Luke 4. Don't go to the cross. Get out your swords and let's go whip up on the Romans. Jesus says, thank you, I'll win by blood. My blood shed for sinners. That is exactly the same temptation. Jesus said, Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and He will at once send more than twelve legions of angels? Yeah! (laughs) He could have whipped up on them right then. But He didn't. The, The second time I want to mention after the Luke 4... He departed from him until an opportune time. First, Matthew 16, Peter's confession, is 
the mockers at the foot of the cross. Matthew 27, I'll have to read a few verses to get clear on this, but if you're with me, you'll, you'll get, I won't even have to apply it, but of course I will, you know, I'm a preacher, that's the way we do stuff. Um, sorry, I get to get to the right chapter. So in Matthew 27, at verse 39, I'll begin at 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you can do it, do it. And of course, he could have done it. He could have called 10,000 angels, legions of angels, to come and deliver him. You better be glad I wasn't on that cross. You know what I would have done? I would have called fire out of heaven. And I would have reduced them to ash. And none of us would have been saved. Can you imagine the temptation? He's holding all the cards, all the power, and they say, little twerps that he created. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. What held him on the cross? We got these, we got these um, songs that say the nails held him on the cross. Friends, the nails did not hold him on the cross. If he could have called legions of angels and come down off the cross, it wasn't nails that kept him on the cross. It was love. It was love for sinners. They kept him on the cross. That's what held him there. We talk about our sins kept him on the cross. Well, maybe I can theologically work that one. But it was love. So you got God's moral testing throughout the Bible and throughout history. Adam is tested. Israel's tested. Jesus is tested. You and I are tested. I haven't done so well. How have you? How have you done in God's moral testing? I break all the Ten Commandments. Pretty good regularity. The good news is just this. Jesus passed God's moral test for himself and for us. He made a perfect score. Adam took the test for you and he failed. Jesus took the test for those who trust in him and he aced it. You know, you know, you know these stories of, you know, an athlete's trying to get in from high school to college and he makes an eight on the ACT or whatever test they're using now and he retakes it and he makes a 23. And you think, why? He really upped his performance. No, you think somebody took his test for him. (laughs) Well, this is a time when it's okay for somebody else to take your test for you. Because Jesus goes into God's grade book. Oh, my goodness, what did I do with it? And he alters the grade. Instead of being that, he does this. That's what he does for people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. You believe that? That's what the gospel says. That's what the good news is. 
that Jesus passed God's moral test for Himself and for His people. So, let's think of some of the things we do in our disbelief of the gospel, okay? We think, I need to pull my grade up. (laughs) You need to pull your grade up. You need to pull Jesus' grade up? Oh, you mean that's what I'd be doing? Yeah. Your grade's not a 89 and you need a 94. Your grade on God's moral test is 100. Your grade is Jesus' grade. As a matter of fact, if you try to raise your grade, it kind of reflects badly on Jesus. We're saying, well, Jesus, what you did was not good enough. I've got to improve on that. And then it becomes, what, arrogant? I can improve on what Jesus did? Doesn't sound too good when you think of it that way, does it? Jesus scores all that I will ever need, and it's all that God will ever accept. Too often we think that the work of Jesus gets into heaven, gets us into heaven, but if God is to really love us, we must perform better. It's wrong. That's a failure of faith. Our obedience to Him and sacrifice for Him should be prompted by love and gratitude and thankfulness. This is the good news. It's what Luther was about. To say that the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to my account is all that I would ever need. And I get that righteousness by faith in Him. So I ask you, do you have? Will you renew your faith in Him? That's what it's all about. Let us pray. Our Father and God, um, we thank you for our dis- that, that you have forgiven our disbelief, that you have forgiven our sins and removed them from us as far as the east, east is from the west. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that you've gone into your Father's grave book for all those that have put their faith in you. And you've rightly changed their zero to a 100. Help us to believe that. Help us to live from that. And when the devil tempts us not to believe it, help us to believe the gospel afresh and anew. We pray in his name. Amen.